This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slippers. They're woolly bullies. They're really cool, they're really snuggly, and they will keep your feet warm. If you live somewhere where it's cold, awesome. If you just want to walk around your house with cool, cute little bull slippers, hey, BunnySlippers.com has you covered. So check it out. Found item Found itemclothing.com also has your favorite I don't know, cult classic t-shirts if you want to check that out so bunnyslippers.com founditemclothing.com thank you everyone for coming back to week 4 week 5 of March I I don't even know anymore but hey, uh, we've got it going on and you've got it going on because you're listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And hey, if you want to help out the show real quick right now, why don't you go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and give us a you know, four or five uh, star review. Let us know what you think of the show. If you want to contact us and give us some suggestions, anything we can do to help you enjoy the show better, let us know. Okay, and that's on the contact of pgttcm.com. We're also on Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales, and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, my monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. And if you want, we can make that twice a month again. Hey, we can do that. Thank you so much for listening. Help support the show by going to pgttcm.com. Hit the links, hit the show notes, hit hit all hit up all that stuff. We got a bunch of stuff. We got Dave's stuff there. We've got Zach's stuff there. We've got interviews with Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy. Let's see, Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman and Victim Seven. So yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff, and we want more stuff with you in the future let us know what you want you want more spooky stuff do you want more ghost stories we'll get it done all right so hey how are you doing hope you're doing all right i'm doing pretty good anyone who follows me on social media knows i'm doing all right i was sick doing better but you know what here comes Arthur Mackens, the terror. Terror. Recording by Dan Grzynski. The Terror by Arthur Mackens, Chapter 4. The Spread of the Terror. It is time, I think, for me to make one point clear. I began this history with certain references to an extraordinary accident to an airman whose machine fell to the ground after collision with a huge flock of pigeons, and then to an explosion in a northern munitions factory, an explosion, as I noted, of a very singular kind. Then I deserted the neighborhood of London and the northern district, and dwelt on a mysterious and terrible series of events which occurred in the summer of 1915 in a Welsh county, which I have named, for convenience, Marion. Well, let it be understood at once that all this detail that I have given about the occurrences in Marion does not imply 
that the county in the far west was alone or especially afflicted by the terror that was over the land. They tell me that in the villages about Dartmoor, the stout Devonshire hearts sank as men's hearts used to sink in the time of plague and pestilence. There was horror, too, about the Norfolk broads, and far up by Perth no one would venture on the path that leads by Scone to the wooded heights above the Tay. And in the industrial districts I met a man by chance one day in an odd London corner who spoke with horror of what a friend had told him. "'Ask no questions, Ned,' he says to me, "'but I tell you, I was in Barnington the other day, "'and I met a pal who'd seen three hundred coffins "'going out of a works not far from there, "'and then the ship that hovered outside the mouth of the Thames "'with all sails set, and beat to and fro in the wind "'and never answered any hail, and showed no light. "'The forts shot at her and brought down one of the masts, but she went suddenly about with a change of wind under what sail still stood, and then veered down channel, and drove ashore at last on the sandbanks and pine woods of Arcachon, and not a man alive on her, but only rattling heaps of bones. That last voyage of the Semiramis would be something horribly worth telling, but I only heard it at a distance as a yarn and only believed it because it squared with other things that I knew for certain. This, then, is my point. I have written of the terror as it fell on Marion, simply because I have had opportunities of getting close there to what really happened. Third or fourth or fifth hand in the other places, but round about Porth and Merthyr Tegveth, I have spoken with people who have seen the tracks of the terror with their own eyes. Well, I have said that the people of that far western county realized not only that death was abroad in their quiet lanes and on their peaceful hills, but that for some reason it was to be kept all secret. Newspapers might not print any news of it. The very juries summoned to investigate it were allowed to investigate nothing, and so they concluded that this veil of secrecy must somehow be connected with the war and from this position it was not a long way to a further inference that the murderers of innocent men and women and children were either Germans or agents of Germany. It would be just like the Huns, everybody agreed, to think out such a devilish scheme as this, and they always thought out their schemes beforehand. They hoped to seize Paris in a few weeks, but when they were beaten on the Marne, they had their trenches on the Asne ready to fall back on, it had all been prepared years before the war, and so, no doubt, they had devised this terrible plan against England in case they could not beat us in open fight. There were people ready, very likely all over the country, who were prepared to murder and destroy everywhere as soon as they got the word. In this way, the Germans intended to sow terror throughout England and fill our hearts with panic and dismay, hoping so to weaken their enemy at home that he would lose all heart over the war abroad. It was the Zeppelin notion in another form. They were committing these horrible and mysterious outrages, thinking that we should be frightened out of our wits. It all seemed plausible enough. Germany had by this time perpetrated so many horrors and had so excelled in devilish ingenuities that no abomination seemed too abominable to be probable or too ingeniously wicked to be beyond the tortuous malice of the Hun. 
But then came the questions as to who the agents of this terrible design were, as to where they lived, as to how they contrived to move unseen from field to field, from lane to lane. All sorts of fantastic attempts were made to answer these questions, but it was felt that they remained unanswered. Some suggested that the murderers landed from submarines or flew from hiding places on the west coast of Ireland, coming and going by night. But there were seen to be flagrant impossibilities in both these suggestions. Everybody agreed that the evil work was no doubt the work of Germany, but nobody could begin to guess how it was done. Somebody at the club asked Remnant for his theory. My theory, said that ingenious person, is that human progress is simply a long march from one inconceivable to another. Look at that airship of ours that came over Porth yesterday. Ten years ago, that would have been an inconceivable sight. Take the steam engine. Stake printing. Take the theory of gravitation. They were all inconceivable till somebody thought of them. So it is, no doubt, with this infernal dodgery that we're talking about. The Huns have found it out and we haven't, and there you are. We can't conceive how these poor people have been murdered because the method's inconceivable to us. The club listened with some awe to this high argument. After Remnant had gone, one member said, Wonderful man, that. Yes, said Dr. Lewis. He was asked whether he knew something, and his reply really amounted to, No, I don't, but I have never heard it better put. It was, I suppose, at about this time when the people were puzzling their heads as to the secret methods used by the Germans or their agents to accomplish their crimes that a very singular circumstance became known to a few of the Porth people. It related to the murder of the Williams family on the highway in front of their cottage door. I do not know that I have made it plain that the old Roman road called the highway follows the course of a long steep hill that goes steadily westward till it slants down and droops towards the sea. On either side of the road the ground falls away, here into deep shadowy woods, here to high pastures, now and again into a field of corn, but for the most part into the wild and broken land that is characteristic of our foam. The fields are long and narrow, stretching up the steep hillside. They fall into sudden dips and hollows, a well springs up in the midst of one, and a grove of ash and thorn bends over it, shading it, and beneath it the ground is thick with reeds and rushes. And then may come on either side of such a field territories, glistening with the deep growth of bracken, and rough with gorse and rugged with thickets of blackthorn, green lichen hanging strangely from the branches. Such are the lands on either side of the highway. Now on the lower slopes of it, beneath the Williams Cottage, some three or four fields down the hill, there is a military camp. The place has been used as a camp for many years, and lately the site has been extended and huts have been erected, but a considerable number of the men were under canvas here in the summer of 1915. On the night of the highway murder, this camp, as it appeared afterwards, was the scene of the extraordinary panic of the horses. A good many men in the camp were asleep in their tents soon after 9.30, when the last post was sounded. They woke up in panic. There was a thundering sound in the steep hillside above them, and down upon the tents came half a dozen horses, mad with fright, trampling the canvas, trampling the men, bruising dozens of them and killing, too. 
Everything was in wild confusion. Men groaning and screaming in the darkness, struggling with the canvas and the twisted ropes, shouting out, some of them, raw lads enough, that the Germans had landed, others wiping the blood from their eyes. A few roused suddenly from heavy sleep, hitting out at one another. Officers coming up at the double, roaring out orders to the sergeants. A party of soldiers who were just returning to camp from the village seized with fright at what they could scarcely see or distinguish. At the wildness of the shouting and cursing and groaning that they could not understand, bolting out of the camp again and racing for their lives back to the village. Everything in the maddest confusion of wild disorder. Some of the men had seen the horses galloping down the hill as if terror itself was driving them. They scattered off into the darkness and somehow or another found their way back in the night to their pasture above the camp. They were grazing there peacefully in the morning, and the only sign of the panic of the night before was the mud they had scattered all over themselves as they pelted through a patch of wet ground. The farmer said they were as quiet a lot as any in Marion. He could make nothing of it. Indeed, he said, I believe they must have seen the devil himself to be in such a fright as that, save the people. Now all this was kept as quiet as might be at the time when it happened. It became known to the men of the Porth Club in the days when they were discussing the difficult question of the German outrages, as the murders were commonly called. And this wild stampede of the farm horses was held by some to be evidence of the extraordinary and unheard of character of the dreadful agency that was at work. One of the members of the club had been told by an officer who was in the camp at the time of the panic that the horses that came charging down were in a perfect fury of fright, that he had never seen horses in such a state, and so there was endless speculation as to the nature of the sight or the sound that had driven half a dozen quiet beasts into raging madness. Then in the middle of this talk, two or three other incidences, quite as odd and incomprehensible, came to be known, born on chance trickles of gossip that came into the towns from outland farms, or were carried by cottagers tramping into Porth on market day with a fowl or two and eggs and garden stuff, Scraps and fragments of talk gathered by servants from the country folk and repeated to their mistresses. And in such ways it came out that up at Plas Newid there had been a terrible business over swarming the bees. They had turned as wild as wasps, and much more savage. They had come about the people who were taking the swarms like a cloud. They settled on one man's face so that you could not see the flesh for the bees crawling all over it and they had stung him so badly that the doctor did not know whether he would get over it. And they had chased a girl who had come out to see the swarming, and settled on her and stung her to death. Then they had gone off to a break below the farm and got into a hollow tree there, and it was not safe to go near it, for they would come out at you by day or by night. And much the same thing had happened, it seemed, at three or four farms and cottages where bees were kept. And there were stories, hardly so clear or so credible, of sheepdogs, mild and trusted beasts, turning as savage as wolves and injuring the farm boys in a horrible manner. In one case, it was said, with fatal results. It was certainly true that old Mrs. Owen's favorite Brahma Dorking cock had gone mad. 
She came into Porth one Saturday morning with her face and her neck all bound up and plastered. She had gone out to her bit of a field to feed the poultry the night before, and the bird had flown at her and attacked her most savagely, inflicting some very nasty wounds before she could beat it off. "'There was a steak handy, lucky for me,' she said, "'and I did beat him and beat him till the life was out of him. "'But what has come to the world, whatever?' "'Now Remnant, the man of theories, "'was also a man of extreme leisure. "'It was understood that he had succeeded to ample means "'when he was quite a young man, "'and after tasting the savours of the law, as it were, "'for half a dozen terms at the board of the Middle Temple,' He had decided that it would be senseless to bother himself with passing examinations for a profession which he had not the faintest intention of practicing. So he turned a deaf ear to the call of manger ringing through the temple courts and set himself out to potter amiably through the world. He had pottered all over Europe, he had looked at Africa, and had even put his head in a door of the east on a trip which included the Greek Isles and Constantinople. Now, getting into the middle fifties, he had settled at Porth for the sake, as he said, of the Gulf Stream and the fuchsia hedges, and pottered over his books and his theories and the local gossip. He was no more brutal than the general public, which revels in the details of mysterious crime, but it must be said that the terror, black though it was, was a boon to him. He peered and investigated and poked about with the relish of a man whose life a new zest has been added. He listened attentively to the strange tales of bees and dogs and poultry that came into Porth with the country baskets of butter, rabbits, and green peas, and he evolved at last a most extraordinary theory. Full of this discovery, as he thought it, he went one night to see Dr. Lewis and take his view of the matter. I want to talk to you said Remnant to the doctor, about what I have called provisionally the Z-Ray. End of chapter 4 Recording by Dan Grzynski The Terror by Arthur Machen Chapter 5 The Incident of the Unknown Tree Dr. Lewis, smiling indulgently and quite prepared for some monstrous piece of theorizing, led Remnant into the room that overlooked the terraced garden and the sea. The doctor's house, though it was only ten minutes' walk from the center of the town, seemed remote from all other habitations. The drive to it from the road came through a deep grove of trees and a dense shrubbery. Trees were about the house on either side, mingling with neighboring groves, and below the garden fell down terrace by green terrace to wild growth, a twisted path amongst red rocks, and at last to the yellow sand of a little cove. The room to which the doctor took remnant looked over these terraces and across the water to the dim boundaries of the bay. It had French windows that were thrown wide open and the two men sat in the soft light of the lamp. This was before the days of severe lighting regulations in the far west, and enjoyed the sweet odors and the sweet vision of the summer evening. Then Remnant began. I suppose, Lewis, 
You've heard these extraordinary stories of bees and dogs and things that have been going about lately. Certainly I've heard them. I was called in at Plas Newid and treated Thomas Trevor, who's only just out of danger, by the way. I certified for the poor child, Mary Trevor. She was dying when I got to the place. There was no doubt she was stung to death by bees, and I believe there were other very similar cases at Lantarnum and Morwen. None fatal, I think. What about them? Well, then there are the stories of good-tempered old sheepdogs turning wicked and savaging children. Quite so. I haven't seen any of these cases professionally, but I believe the stories are accurate enough. And the old woman assaulted by her own poultry? That's perfectly true. Her daughter put some stuff of their own concoction on her face and neck, and then she came to me. The wounds seemed going all right, so I told her to continue the treatment, whatever it might be. Very good, said Mr. Remnant. He spoke now, with an italic impressiveness. Don't you see the link between all this and the horrible things that have been happening about here for the last month? Lewis stared at Remnant in amazement. He lifted his red eyebrows and lowered them in a kind of scowl. His speech showed traces of his native accent. "'Great burning!' he exclaimed. "'What on earth are you getting at now? It is madness! Do you mean to tell me that you think there is some connection between a swarm or two of bees that have turned nasty, a cross dog, and a wicked old barn door cock, and these poor people that have been pitched over the cliffs and hammered to death on the road? There's no sense in it, you know. I am strongly inclined to believe that there is a great deal of sense in it, replied Remnant with extreme calmness. Look here, Lewis. I saw you grinning the other day at the club when I was telling the fellows that, in my opinion, all these outrages had been committed certainly by the Germans, but by some method of which we have no conception. But what I meant to say when I talked about inconceivables was just this, that the Williams and the rest of them have been killed in some way that's not in theory at all, not in our theory at all events, some way we've not contemplated, not thought of for an instant. Do you see my point? Well, in a sort of way, you mean there's an absolute originality in the method? I suppose that is so, but what next? Remnant seemed to hesitate, partly from a sense of the portentous nature of what he was about to say, partly from a sort of half-unwillingness to part with so profound a secret. Well, he said, you will allow that we have two sets of phenomena of a very extraordinary kind occurring at the same time. Don't you think that it's only reasonable to connect the two sets with one another? So the philosopher of Tenderden Steeple and the Goodwin Sands thought, certainly, said Lewis. But what is the connection? Those poor folks on the highway weren't stung by bees or worried by a dog. And horses don't throw people over cliffs or stifle them in marshes. No, I never meant to suggest anything so absurd. 
It is evident to me that in all these cases of animals turning suddenly savage, the cause has been terror, panic, fear. The horses that went charging into the camp were mad with fright, we know. And I say that in the other instances we have been discussing the cause was the same. The creatures were exposed to an infection of fear, and a frightened beast or bird or insect uses its weapons, whatever they may be. If, for example, there had been anybody with those horses when they took their panic, they would have lashed out at him with their heels. Yes, I dare say that that is so. Well? Well, my belief is that the Germans have made an extraordinary discovery. I've called it the Z-ray. You know that the ether is merely an hypothesis. We have to suppose that it's there to account for the passage of the Marconi current from one place to another. Now suppose that there is a psychic ether, as well as a material ether. Suppose that it is possible to direct irresistible impulses across this medium. Suppose that these impulses are towards murder or suicide. Then I think you have an explanation of the terrible series of events that have been happening in Marion for the last few weeks. And it is quite clear to my mind that the horses and the other creatures have been exposed to this Z-ray and that it has produced on them the effect of terror with ferocity as the result of terror. Now what do you say to that? Telepathy, you know, is well established. So is hypnotic suggestion. You have only to look in the Encyclopedia Britannica to see that, and suggestion is so strong in some cases as to be an irresistible imperative. Now don't you feel that putting telepathy and suggestion together, as it were, you have more than the elements of what I call the Z-ray? I feel myself that I have more to go on in making my hypotheses than the inventor of the steam engine had in making his hypotheses when he saw the lid of the kettle bobbing up and down. What do you say? Dr. Lewis made no answer. He was watching the growth of a new, unknown tree in his garden. The doctor made no answer to Remnant's question. For one thing, Remnant was profuse in his eloquence. He had been rigidly condensed in his history, and Lewis was tired of the sound of his voice. For another thing, he found the Z-ray theory almost too extravagant to be bearable, wild enough to tear patience to tatters. And then as the tedious argument continued, Lewis became conscious that there was something strange about the night. It was a dark summer night. The moon was old and faint above the dragon's head across the bay, and the air was very still. It was so still that Lewis had noted that not a leaf stirred on the very tip of a high tree that stood out against the sky, and yet he knew that he was listening to some sound that he could not determine or define. It was not the wind in the leaves. It was not the gentle wash of the water of the sea against the rocks. That latter sound he could distinguish quite easily. But there was something else. It was scarcely a sound. It was as if the air itself trembled and fluttered, as the air trembles in a church when they open the great pedal pipes of the organ. The doctor listened intently. It was not an illusion. 
The sound was not in his own head, as he had suspected for a moment. But for the life of him, he could not make out whence it came or what it was. He gazed down into the night over the terraces of his garden, now sweet with the scent of the flowers of the night, tried to peer over the treetops across the sea toward the dragon's head. It struck him suddenly that this strange fluttering vibration of the air might be the noise of a distant aeroplane or airship. There was not the usual droning hum, but this sound might be caused by a new type of engine. A new type of engine? Possibly it was an enemy airship. Their range, it had been said, was getting longer. And Lewis was just going to call Remnant's attention to the sound, to its possible cause, and to the possible danger that might be hovering over them, when he saw something that caught his breath and his heart with wild amazement and a touch of terror. He had been staring upward into the sky and about to speak to Remnant. He had let his eyes drop for an instant. He looked down towards the trees in the garden and saw with utter astonishment that one had changed its shape in the few hours that had passed since the setting of the sun. There was a thick grove of ilexes bordering the lowest terrace, and above them rose one tall pine, spreading its head of sparse dark branches dark against the sky. As Lewis glanced down over the terraces, he saw that the tall pine tree was no longer there. In its place there rose above the ilexes what might have been a greater ilex. There was the blackness of a dense growth of foliage rising like a broad and far-spreading and rounded cloud over the lesser trees. Here, then, was a sight wholly incredible, impossible. It is doubtful whether the process of the human mind in such a case has ever been analyzed and registered. It is doubtful whether it ever can be registered. It is hardly fair to bring in the mathematician, since he deals with absolute truth, so far as mortality can conceive absolute truth. But how would a mathematician feel if he were suddenly confronted with a two-sided triangle? I suppose he would instantly become a raging madman, and Lewis, staring wide-eyed and wild-eyed, at a dark and spreading tree which his own experience informed him was not there, felt for an instant that shock which should affront us all when we first realized the intolerable antinomy of Achilles and the tortoise. Common sense tells us that Achilles will flash past the tortoise almost with the speed of the lightning. The inflexible truth of mathematics assures us that till the earth boils and the heavens cease to endure, the tortoise must still be in advance, and thereupon we should, in common decency, go mad. We do not go mad, because by special grace we are certified that, in the final court of appeal, all science is a lie, even the highest science of all. And so we simply grin at Achilles and the tortoise, as we grin at Darwin, deride Huxley, and laugh at Herbert Spencer. Dr. Lewis did not grin. He glared into the dimness of the night at the great spreading tree that he knew could not be there, 
and as he gazed he saw that what at first appeared the dense blackness of foliage was fretted and starred with wonderful appearances of lights and colors afterwards he said to me i remember thinking to myself look here i am not delirious my temperature is perfectly normal i am not drunk i only had a pint of graves with my dinner over three hours ago i have not eaten any poisonous fungus i have not taken anilonium lueni experimentally so now then what is happening the night had gloomed over clouds obscured the faint moon and the misty stars lewis rose with some kind of warning and inhibiting gesture to remnant who he was conscious was gaping at him in astonishment he walked to the open french window and took a pace forward onto the path outside and looked very intently at the dark shape of the tree down below the sloping garden above the washing of the waves he shaded the light of the lamp behind him by holding his hands on each side of his eyes the mass of the tree the tree that couldn't be there stood out against the sky but not so clearly now that the clouds had rolled up its edges the limits of its leafage were not so distinct lewis thought that he could detect some sort of quivering movement in it though the air was at a dead calm it was a night on which one might hold up a lighted match and watch it burn without any wavering or inclination of the flame you know said lewis how a bit of burnt paper will sometimes hang over the coals before it goes up the chimney and little worms of fire will shoot through it it was like that if you should be standing some distance away just threads and hairs of yellow light i saw and specks and sparks of fire and then a twinkling of a ruby no bigger than a pinpoint and a green wandering in the black as if an emerald were crawling and then little veins of deep blue woe is me i said to myself in welsh what is all this color and burning and then at that very moment there came a thundering rap at the door of the room inside and there was my man telling me that i was wanted directly up at the garth as old mr trevor williams had been taken very bad i knew his heart was not worth much so i had to go off directly and leave remnant to make what he could of it all end of chapter five recording by dan gruzinski the terror by arthur Machen. chapter six mr remnant's z-ray dr lewis was kept some time at the garth it was past twelve when he got back to his house he went quickly to the room that overlooked the garden and the sea and threw open the french window and peered into the darkness there dim indeed against the dim sky but unmistakable was the tall pine tree with its sparse branches high above the dense growth of the ilex trees the strange boughs which had amazed him had vanished there was no appearance now of colors or of fires he drew his chair up to the open window and sat there gazing and wondering far into the night till brightness came upon the sea and sky and the forms of the trees in the garden grew clear and evident he went up to his bed at last filled with a great perplexity 
still asking questions to which there was no answer. The doctor did not say anything about the strange tree to Remnant. When they next met, Lewis said that he had thought there was a man hiding amongst the bushes. This, in explanation of that warning gesture he had used, and of his going out into the garden and staring into the night. He concealed the truth, because he dreaded the remnant doctrine that would undoubtedly be produced. Indeed, he hoped that he had heard the last of the theory of the Z-Ray. But Remnant firmly reopened this subject. We were interrupted just as I was putting my case to you, he said. And to sum it all up, it amounts to this, that the Huns have made one of the great leaps of science. They are sending suggestions, which amount to irresistible commands, over here. And the persons affected are seized with suicidal or homicidal mania. The people who were killed by falling over the cliffs or into the quarry probably committed suicide. And so with the man and the boy who were found in the bog. As to the highway case, you remember that Thomas Evans said that he stopped and talked to Williams on the night of the murder. In my opinion, Evans was the murderer. He came under the influence of the ray, became a homicidal maniac in an instant, snatched William's spade from his hand, and killed him and the others. The bodies were found by me on the road. It is possible that the first impact of the ray produces violent nervous excitement, which would manifest itself externally. Williams might have called to his wife to come and see what was the matter with Evans. The children would naturally follow their mother. It seems to me simple. And as for the animals, the horses, dogs, and so forth, they, as I say, were no doubt panic-stricken by the ray, and hence driven to frenzy. Why should Evans have murdered Williams instead of Williams murdering Evans? Why should the impact of the ray affect one and not the other? Why does one man react violently to a certain drug while it makes no impression on another man? Why is A able to drink a bottle of whiskey and remain sober, while B is turned into something very like a lunatic after he has drunk three glasses? It is a question of idiosyncrasy, said the doctor. Is idiosyncrasy Greek for, I don't know, asked Remnant? Not at all, said Lewis, smiling blandly. I mean that in some diatheses, whiskey, as you have mentioned whiskey, appears not to be pathogenic, or at all events not immediately pathogenic. In other cases, as you very justly observed, there seems to be a very marked cachexia associated with the exhibition of the spirit in question, even in comparatively small doses. Under this cloud of professional verbiage, Lewis escaped from the club and from Remnant. He did not want to hear any more about that dreadful ray, because he felt sure that the ray was all nonsense. But asking himself why he felt this certitude in the matter, he had to confess that he didn't know. An aeroplane, he reflected, was all nonsense before it was made, and he remembered talking in the early 90s to a friend of his about the newly discovered x-rays. The friend laughed incredulously, evidently didn't believe a word of it, till Lewis told him that there was an article on the subject in the current number of the Saturday Review. 
Whereupon the unbeliever said, Oh, is that so? Oh, really? I see. And was converted on the X-ray faith on the spot. Lewis, remembering this talk, marveled at the strange processes of the human mind, its illogical and yet all-compelling ergos, and wondered whether he himself was only waiting for an article on the Z-Ray in the Saturday Review to become a devout believer in the doctrine of remnant. But he wondered with far more fervor as to the extraordinary thing he had seen in his own garden with his own eyes. The tree that changed all its shape for an hour or two of the night. The growth of strange boughs. The apparition of secret fires among them. The sparkling of emerald and ruby lights. How could one fail to be afraid, with great amazement, at the thought of such a mystery? Dr. Lewis's thoughts were distracted from the incredible adventure of the tree by the visit of his sister and her husband. Mr. and Mrs. Merritt lived in a well-known manufacturing town of the Midlands, which was now, of course, a center of munition work. On the day of their arrival at Porth, Mrs. Merritt, who was tired after the long, hot journey, went to bed early, and Merritt and Lewis went into the room by the garden for their talk and tobacco. They spoke of the year that had passed since their last meeting, of the weary dragging of the war, of friends that had perished in it, of the hopelessness of an early ending of all this misery. Lewis said nothing of the terror that was on the land. One does not greet a tired man who has come to a quiet, sunny place for relief from black smoke and work and worry with a tale of horror. Indeed, the doctor saw that his brother-in-law looked far from well, and he seemed jumpy. There was an occasional twitch of his mouth that Lewis did not like at all. Well, said the doctor, after an interval of silence and port wine, I am glad to see you here again. Porth always suits you. I don't think you're looking quite up to your usual form, but three weeks of Marian air will do wonders. Well, I hope it will, said the other. I'm not up to the mark. Things are not going well at Middlingham. Business is all right, isn't it? Yes, business is all right, but there are other things that are all wrong. We are living under a reign of terror, it comes to that. What on earth do you mean? Well, I suppose I may tell you what I know. It's not much. I didn't dare write it. But do you know that at every one of the munition works in Middlingham, and all about it, there's a guard of soldiers with drawn bayonets and loaded rifles day and night? Men with bombs, too. And machine guns at the big factories. German spies? You don't want Lewis guns to fight spies with, nor bombs, nor a platoon of men. I woke up last night. It was the machine gun at Bennington's Army Motor Works, firing like fury, and then bang, bang, bang. That was the hand bombs. But what against? Nobody knows. Nobody knows what is happening, Merritt repeated, and he went on to describe the bewilderment and terror that hung like a cloud over the great industrial city in the Midlands. How the feeling of concealment, of some intolerable secret danger that must not be named, was worse of all. 
A young fellow I know, he said, was on short leave the other day from the front, and he spent it with his people at Belmont. That's about four miles out of Middlingham, you know. Thank God, he said to me, I'm going back tomorrow. It's no good saying that the wiper's salient is nice, because it isn't. But it's a damn sight better than this. At the front, you know what you're up against anyhow. At Middlingham, everybody has the feeling that we're up against something awful, and we don't know what. It's that that makes people inclined to whisper. There's terror in the air. Merritt made a sort of picture of the great town cowering in its fear of an unknown danger. People are afraid to go out about alone at nights in the outskirts. They make up parties at the stations to go home together if it's anything like dark, or if there are any lonely bits on their way. But why? I don't understand. What are they afraid of? Well, I told you about my being awakened up the other night with the machine guns at the motor works rattling away and the bombs exploding and making the most terrible noise. That sort of thing alarms one, you know. It's only natural. Indeed, it must be very terrifying. You mean, then, there is a general nervousness about, a vague sort of apprehension that makes people inclined to herd together? There's that, and there's more. People have gone out that have never come back. There were a couple of men in the train to home, arguing about the quickest way to get to North End, a sort of outlying part of home where they both lived. They argued all the way out of Middlingham, one saying that the high road was the quickest, though it was the longest way. It's the quickest going because it's the cleanest going, he said. And the other chap fancied a shortcut across the fields by the canal. It's half the distance, he kept on. Yes, if you don't lose your way, said the other. Well, it appears they put an even half crown on it, and each was to try his own way when they got out of the train. It was arranged that they were to meet at the wagon in North End. I shall be at the wagon first, said the man, who believed in the shortcut. And with that, he climbed over the stile and made off across the fields. It wasn't late enough to be really dark, and a lot of them thought he might win the stakes. But he never turned up at the wagon, or anywhere else for the matter of that. What happened to him? He was found lying on his back in the middle of a field, some way from the path. He was dead. The doctors said he'd been suffocated. Nobody knows how. Then there have been other cases. We whisper about them at Midlingham, but we're afraid to speak out. Lewis was ruminating all this profoundly. Terror in Marion and terror far away in the heart of England. But at Middlingham, so far as he could gather from these stories of soldiers on guard, of crackling machine guns, it was a case of an organized attack on the munitioning of the army. He felt that he did not know enough to warrant his deciding that the terror of Marion and of Stratfordshire were one. Then Merritt began again. There's a queer story going about, when the door is shut, the curtains drawn, that is, as to a place right out in the country over the other side of Middlingham, on the opposite side to Dunwich. They've built one of the new factories out there, a great red brick town of sheds, they tell me it is, 
with a tremendous chimney. It's not been finished more than a month or six weeks. They plumped it down right in the middle of the fields by the line, and they're building huts for the workers as fast as they can, but up to the present, the men are billeted all about, up and down the line. About 200 yards from this place, there's an old footpath leading from the station and the main road up to the small hamlet on the hillside. Part of the way this path goes by a pretty large wood, most of it thick undergrowth. I should think there must be 20 acres of wood, more or less. As it happens, I used this path once long ago, and I can tell you it's a black place of nights. A man had to go this way one night. He got along all right till he came to the wood, and then he said his heart dropped out of his body. It was awful to hear the noises in that wood. Thousands of men were in it, he swears that. It was full of rustling and pattering of feet, trying to go dainty, and the crack of dead boughs lying on the ground as someone trod on them, and swishing of the grass, and some sort of chattering speech going on that sounded, so he said, as if the dead sat in their bones and talked. He ran for his life anyhow across the fields, over hedges, through brooks. He must have run by his tail ten miles out of his way before he got home to his wife, and beat at the door and broke in and bolted it behind him. There is something rather alarming about any wood at night, said Dr. Lewis. Merritt shrugged his shoulders. People say that the Germans have landed, and that they are hiding in underground places all over the country. End of chapter 6